Good morning and welcome. We're here this morning to argue in the case of State XRL Richard Allen Relator versus Carroll Circuit Court and the Honorable Fran M. Gall Respondents. Counsel for Richard Allen, the Relator, will argue first. We're hearing this case on a writ for mandamus and a prohibition case. Disclaimer. In this episode, we will be discussing the murder of two young girls. Everyone discussed in this chapter will be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. Hey, what's up, everybody? I had this episode pre-planned, pre-written and pre-planned. I was going to go over a filing made by Richard Allen's new defense team. I'm still going to go over it a little bit because it has some interesting information about um, his new prison. He was transferred in the middle of the night and nobody still to this day knows why he was transferred, the reason behind that transfer. But in any case, he was transferred from Westville down to Wabash County, or not County, sorry, he's still in a, a prison facility, but he was transferred into a new facility and his new attorney's um, Scrimmon and Libredo made a trip down there to visit him and they made a filing a motion to transfer. So my plan was to go over that because it had some really kind of interesting information about the conditions that kind of backed up what his former attorneys had claimed about mistreatment and the conditions. So I'm still going to go over it, but just not as in-depth because Today being January 18th, the Supreme Court hearing was this morning. Um, they had, the Supreme Court had had agreed to hear oral arguments um, regarding the reinstatement of um, Rick Allen's original defense team, Rosie and Baldwin, and also about uh, the judge being removed. <clears throat> So that hearing is what we heard in the opening. That's just the opening little bit. So each side got uh, 30 minutes to argue and basically answer the judge's questions and give their uh, clarifications to the justices' questions that they had about the arguments, about the briefings, that those writ of mandamus that were filed. And... Um, I'm going to, I'm going to try to link it in the show notes so that everybody can go and listen to the entire hearing. However, I'm going to have, uh, the entire hearing up on our YouTube channel, which I'll also link in the show notes. Um, but anyways, that hearing was all said and done by noon, my time. So it did last for one hour. They were very prompt. They were on time. They started at 11 o'clock sharp. Um, So Rick Allen's attorneys went first. They um, did their clarifications and their oral argument for about 25 minutes. And then uh, Francis Gull's lawyers got up and they made their oral arguments and gave their clarifications for the justices. And then there was a rebuttal allowed for the remaining, I think it was seven minutes, it turned out to be seven minutes for rebuttal um, for Rick Allen's defense to get back up and answer to anything that the state had said. So at the end of it all, they said that they would issue their um, ruling um, as soon as they could. They were going to take some time to consider, and usually it takes you know, a week, but sometimes it can take months, sometimes. One of the things that was said in the hearing was that time is of the essence in this case. It's not even gone through the trial court level yet. So everybody understands that this is a very pressing matter to get this trial back on track. So this afternoon, just a couple of hours later, the Supreme Court issued their ruling. And I got to tell you, and I should say right before we got the Supreme Court's order. Um, Nick McClelland, the prosecutor in the Delphi murders case, um, issued, or sorry, filed a amendment to Rick Allen's charges. 
he's now not only charged with two counts of felony murder, but he has added two counts of murder. So basically the felony murder, we've, we've gone through this before, the felony murder in Indiana means that um, in the process of kidnapping the girls or as a result of kidnapping the girls, um, that resulted in their death. So it's a murder that resulted from a kidnapping that is felony murder. Now these next two charges that were added today are just murder. So now the whole time we've been all saying that prosecution only has to prove that Rick Allen is the guy on the bridge who had forced the girls to go down the hill. That's all they had to prove on that felony murder charge. Now, Nick McLean, Nick McClelland is basically saying, not only can I prove that he's bridge guy and forced the girls down the hill, but I can also prove that he's the one that committed this murder. So those charges were brought today, which is, I mean, I mean, it's good because I've always been very much in favor of no lawyer for the state or defense is going to put something in a court filing unless they believe they have enough evidence to back it up. So it's looking to me like they might have strong evidence of guilt, but that, I mean, time will tell when it comes to Rick Allen's trial. More importantly today, though, um, we can, I'm going to read the Indiana Supreme Court published order. Like I said, they came out with this afternoon, just hours after that oral hearing, oral argument hearing ended. Um, so here's the published order. The relator, Richard Allen, seeks relief from this court under the rules of procedure for original actions. The relator has requested a permanent writ of mandamus asking this court to, one, order the trial court to reinstate his former trial counsel, attorneys Andrew Baldwin and Brad Rosie, and his court-appointed counsel. Two, order the trial court to commence relator's trial within 70 days from the issuance of this writ. And three, remove the special judge from relator's case and appoint a new special judge. Having considered the written submissions and having heard the arguments of counsel, a majority of the court votes to grant the petition for writ as to the relator's request to reinstate attorneys Baldwin and Rosie as his court-appointed counsel. The court unanimously denies all other relief sought. The court will promptly issue a written opinion explaining its reasons. The pendency of this matter in this court does not stay the proceedings in the trial court. Done at Indianapolis, Indiana on today's date. And it was signed by the Chief Justice of Indiana, Loretta Rush. So what this means is Andrew Baldwin and Brad Rosie are back in. They are his court-appointed lawyers. The rest of the requests in that writ of mandamus being that um, they wanted the speedy trial to commence 70 days from the date that that writ was written which unfortunately is coming right up, but that was denied. And also the removal of Judge Gall, that was also denied. So where do we go from here? It kind of depends on, on the judge. She has a few options as far as I understand it. She can concede and say, okay, let's move forward. And that also depends on Rosie and Baldwin. Now, are they going to decide to... Um, go forward with their motion to have the judge removed. And if they do that, is there going to be another judge that's appointed to make that decision? So this is going to be very interesting to see. The other thing that could happen is Judge Gull could start an incompetence or ineffective counsel hearing, do things the proper way. And I have to say, if you guys don't go and watch that Supreme Court oral argument hearing from this morning, every single one of those justices, there were five of them up there, and every single one of them referred to the process that's been followed not being the proper way. Like, What is the harm in doing things the proper way? So that stuck out to me immediately, and, and the majority of people who were watching came away from that oral argument hearing pretty much knowing that the lawyers were going to be reinstated. But having said that, 
if Judge Gull really wants them off the case, she has the she she has the opportunity now to do things the proper way and have a hearing and bring the evidence to show that they're grossly incompetent or whatever else her her reasoning was. I don't think that that's going to happen just because it could be weeks before we actually get the court's written opinion explaining its reasons for all of the the denials. And it could say in there that a judge does not have the authority to remove counsel of choice based on incompetence. Um, there's, there's reasons to do that, like conflict of interest and stuff like that, but none of that happened here. And also Rick Allen sent a letter to the judge saying that he's aware of the issues and still wants these guys to represent him. And that's his sixth amendment right to choose his own counsel. So I can't see that happening, but I also can't really see them going forward with Baldwin, Rosie, and Judge Gull. I really, I can't, but I mean, stranger things have happened in this case, let's be real. So anyways, it's a big day for Richard Allen's rights. He got his old attorneys back, and uh, I suspect they're going to be filing for speedy trial here very soon. So from the date of whatever filing that is, then we're going to see trial within 70 days, which is a great, great thing for the families to get this over and done with, get some facts. They'll finally know what happened and uh, yeah, we can move forward. So all in all, I think it was a good day. It was a big day um, to yet to be determined what they're going to do about this stuff. But, you know, like I said, at the end of the day, at least, at least that question has been answered. I just want to play for you a little bit of the oral argument and the questions posed to um, the relators' attorneys, so the defense side. I want to play for you some of that oral argument and some of the questions that the justices had for them. Um, I thought it was very interesting, and, um, and it'll save you from going and watching it. It's still a really good watch. That hour goes by super fast, and... Yeah, it's very educational if you're into that kind of thing. If not, I think you could probably skip ahead maybe 20 minutes or so. Um, and we will go over the filing made by Scremen and Libredo last week about his transfer. But um, which I don't know what happens to that now because they're officially off the case. I think that it still has to be ruled on. But in whose name, like, I don't know, but we will get into that after I play this, this little bit and I'll try to break it up a little bit. So it's not as, it's not dry at all, in my opinion, but it is, like I said, 20, 23 minutes long. So here we go. Good morning, justices. No Indiana court has tolerated a trial judge removing a lawyer from a case over the client's objection based on the judge's subjective belief the lawyer is negligent or being ineffective. Cases across the entire country do not tolerate the removal of the entire defense team from a case over the client's objection where the lawyer is licensed in the jurisdiction and prepared for trial on the scheduled date. When a judge severs the attorney-client relationship over the client's objection, the integrity of our entire judicial system is undermined and the unauthorized action necessitates that this court intervene invoke its inherent authority to supervise the conduct of lower courts. On October 12th, the judge ordered counsel to, quote, cease work on Mr. Allen's case until we meet on the 19th. This was a period where intensive work was occurring in the case, where Mr. Allen and his lawyers were in the middle of tactical decisions and strategy review, disempowering the right to counsel. When October 19th rolled around, the judge took clearly coercive action to sever the attorney-client relationship on her own motion. The judge was without jurisdiction to sever the entire defense team over the objection of Mr. Allen's wishes and this and his, and the desire, and his licensed counsel who both will reign in active and good standing in our state. Without jurisdiction? Explain that. Why was the judge without jurisdiction? Judge, I think the judge here exceeded her jurisdiction when she refused to accept Rick Allen's wishes when she had an absolute duty to act. And the judge crossed the barrier of neutrality and entered the realm of being an advocate. And when the defendant is saying, this is what I want, this is what I desire, that the judge is without 
without jurisdiction and has an absolute duty to act upon the client's wishes under those circumstances. So isn't your, isn't your argument uh, more accurately phrased that she's under a duty to let them back into the case? It's not a question of court's jurisdiction being exceeded, is it? No, Judge, I see, I see those as one and the same. Are you talking about authority or jurisdiction? I mean, we have a lot of cases that define both of those differently. Judge, I think that uh, under either construction, and I, I see this as the judge is without authority, or excuse me, the judge is under an absolute duty to act upon the wishes of the defendant under these circumstances. Okay, but, 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 it's, but, you, but you don't cite a lot in that. So when you talk about absolute duty, a court, we, we have cases that say courts can remove counsel for various reasons. If they're not a member of bar, if there's a conflict that really is to the detriment of the client. So there, there's not an absolute duty to always leave counsel on, correct? There is some discretion that the trial court judge has. There's an absolute duty to follow the client's wishes. And when a conflict of interest arises, the issue is, is whether the client fully understands that, that whether he's making a knowing and voluntary decision. And the absolute duty is uh, found under the Sixth Amendment? Judge, I think the absolute duty could just be under this court's case law. But I think that in the aggregate, that the three violations of the Sixth Amendment provide this uh, constitutes three situations where in their totality, they clearly place the limit on the judge. Is there a reason why you didn't file a state constitutional claim? I was sort of surprised by that under Article 1, Section 13. Judge, we didn't feel like we had the record to that had preserved that issue and developed a separate uh, argument under the Indiana Constitution. But we are not, we're not arguing that this court isn't free to, to pr proceed under that analysis. We had basically five or six days under a situation where the judge wasn't even giving us a transcript to see exactly what took place within that January. You have a lot of concerns, but I've had a couple, you've had a lot of concerns, and, and you do a nice job laying those out in your brief, but there's a couple of things. You're asking the court to issue a ruling for a speedy trial. It appears Mr. Allen signed that with his, with his attorneys in August, but they had never filed it. So, correct? Yes, I think when he signed it, they were outside of the 70 day, but the speedy trial so you acknowledge that you're asking us to to grant something that wasn't requested at the trial level well it wasn't requested at the trial level your honor because it wasn't necessary until october 31st when the judge uh, removed them the third and kind of final time so they sat on it for two they had it for two months and didn't file it your client signed it in august under the yeah. Uh, yes, Your Honor. They had it and did not file it. One, they, there wouldn't have been a reason to file it. They had it made. So the speedy trial was an intimate part of their of their strategy here, and they had developed strategy and tactics with Mr. Allen as to when specifically to file that. The request for the completion of discovery was granted by the judge. That that deadline was sub submitted or uh, ordered by the court to be November first. And then the t tactic there would have been to file for a speedy trial right after that to uh, lock in the trial date and to close down the evidence that the prosecutor can then introduce at that point. But Your Honor, that request is because it's the relief that our client wants and wants, and so we needed to present it to this court. Obviously, if this court uh, reinstates attorneys Baldwin and Rosie and um, orders the judge off the case that if we proceed forward with the trial that they can refile that with a, with the senior judge who would take over the case but the relief that mr allen wants is he wants attorneys baldwin and rosie on the case and he wanted a speedy trial and in order to show that that's an intimate part of the trial tactics and decisions that were going on was to present that to the court and make sure that this court had an opportunity to rule on it if it wanted to do Does so. Does your argument depend on our having found that the trial court's underlying findings of gross negligence and incompetence were wrong? No. I, well, if she's right about those findings, why isn't that, why is it the relief that she ordered appropriate? First, Justice Slaughter, she's not right about those findings. Second, there isn't a record to even substantiate those findings. But third, those well, issues but, but don't maybe if, there's, if there's not a, if there's not a record, maybe then the findings aren't proper. But if the findings are correct, why why doesn't what what she did follow from those findings? Because the attorney, excuse me, the client has the autonomy to choose the direction of his representation, and the, if he is aware that there may have been some sort of violation or the judge feels that there's a violation, he is allowed to waive 
hit that concern and to proceed forward with the lawyers of that well, he's developed wave, a relationship. What concern? Wave any, for example, she, she's concerned, at least as I understood the record, she's concerned that with these counsel proceeding on his behalf, if they go to trial, he may well have built-in reversible error because his counsel are ineffective, constitutionally ineffective. And if you're talking about a waiver of rights, are you suggesting that your client would waive whatever Strickland violation might occur were, were he to proceed to trial with these lawyers? Judge, I, that's almost essentially what happened with regards to the disclosure of the Westerman material. He filed with the judges. I'm aware of that. I'm I know just, what's I'm happening. To tell I'm ready to ride I'm just asking you to lawyers. tell us on the record whether that's something you're asserting on your client's behalf. If we grant the relief you want, there will be no Strickland claim that can be asserted because you're waiving it. I, I think on the West, if the judge was to build appropriate record, that can happen. The, the judge, that's what happens in all conflict of interest cases, and that's what happens under this court's case law. You bring the defendant into chambers, you say, listen, in Lada, he's representing your, the wife, he's representing you, or excuse me, he's representing your husband, ma'am, and he's representing you. Do you fully understand that by proceeding forward, that could cause some problems for you? And he has a, he may not have fully disclosed those to you because his interests, his loyalties are divided. Well, if I hear what you're saying, you're invoking your client's right to counsel of choice, but you're disclaiming your client's right to competent counsel if, when and if and when he goes to trial. Disclaiming, no. You're, you're waiving his, your client's in, in willingness or to, uh, right to invoke uh, a Strickland argument on collateral review. The client can knowingly and voluntarily waive conflicts of interest, and he can waive uh, certain issues for collateral review. Absolutely. But none of that happened here because the judge didn't hold a hearing. The judge didn't hold a hearing and say, listen, I feel like this pretrial publicity somehow a year ago is going to contaminate your trial. Counsel, we're not, talk, we're not talking about waiving conflicts of interest. We're talking about waiving ineffectiveness. None of these things that the judge is citing have anything to do with ineffectiveness of trial counsel at trial. Ineffectiveness is not coextensive with ethical violations. She thought his representation was grossly negligent and incompetent. She said you're, you're grossly the, negligent the, the, the and lawyers, I don't know if it was about trial representation at all. And in the arguments that she advances in the brief regarding what she says is grossly negligent and incompetent have nothing to do with whether a fair trial is going to happen here. And if there was a hearing where these matters were discussed and fully vetted, that either the client could waive any Strickland issue as to those issues, or the issues would be proven that the judge just, there's no foundation for the concerns that she's had. Mr. Lehman, yes, sir. that's really what I'm struggling with. Um, our original jurisdiction is, is very limited. And so uh, if we were to agree with you on uh, the substantive arguments that you've made, why is it that the regular appellate process is wholly inadequate. Yeah. Justice Goff, um, interlocutory review and direct review are impossible and don't get us anywhere near the relief that my client's entitled to. My client was entitled to a jury trial today. My client's entitled to a jury trial with effective lawyers that he spent a year and three months developing a well thought of well thought out strategy of third party guilt and a speedy trial to catch that prosecutor on their back foot. And it was blown out of the water from a judge who exceeded her authority. And so what we couldn't, we would have began that interlocutory review process by putting a motion in front of the judge, asking her to certify an order that we weren't even sure what her order was, but she wouldn't give us the transcript until we came to this court and insisted that she get it to us so we could figure out what the scope of what happened was. So, she would have had 30 days to rule on that interlocutory request. Meanwhile, Ms. Winicky and I got this entire case briefed on an original action to this court in less than 30 days with amicus filings on all parties. And that was even with the judge asking for an extension of time. This gentleman had attorneys Baldwin and Rosie who he'd been working with for over a year to develop and get ready to catch that prosecutor on their back foot with a well-developed third-party guilt strategy that was to be going now. Wait, Mr. Lehman, we would have a full record if they hadn't agreed to withdraw, correct? It would have gone to hearing? I don't think they would have had a full record even then, Judge. The judge was saying that there wasn't, there was a co coercive action, the judge, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say these things. And Mr. Rosie presses at her, well, what's that proceeding going to be? And the culmination of it is, that the judge says, the culmination is you're removed. So the 
record, I don't know, would have been any better. And in fact, it could have it would have harmed Mr. Allen even more because it would have put on the public record the judge's personal bias towards the strategy and that he had developed, which is a strategy of these two gentlemen. That's one of the things you have to prove with regard to the, the request to recuse. Well, we believe because you're saying there's not enough for this, but there is enough for that. There's not enough information with regard to the negligence and incompetence, but there is enough with regard to personal bias. Correct, Your Honor. I do think that's I don't think those positions are inconsistent, that there is no evidence of incompetence, certainly no evidence of trial incompetence, which is what the six my concern is getting this case back on track. All right. So your argument is that you have a constitutional right to counsel of your choice in this circumstance. And you acknowledge there are some circumstances that you do not. And if this case would go to trial, if there was a conviction, it's structural error, it'd be reversed and everybody would have to go through this again. Correct? Yes. Judge, but I do want to clarify that this is more than just the choice of counsel case. Like this is an interference of counsel. This is and this is the right to counsel itself, because the right to counsel is meaningless. If a judge can say, stop all work, I know you've got a relationship going on, stop it all till you come to my chambers, and then says, you're off the case, whether we go into the courtroom or you stay in here, you're off the case. A lot of events in this case that led up to that hearing, correct? With regard to sending information on a case to another criminal defendant, with regard to, um, well, there's a lot. I don't need to go through it in both your briefs. So there's a lot of questionable things that have occurred um, up to this point with regard to the release of discovery or letting third parties have access to discovery. Is there no line that a judge, let's say that everything was turned over and counsel didn't show up for hearings. Is there ever a line that a trial court judge has to say, listen, I know this is your, this is your court of, at this point, a court appointed counsel. Um, I do not think you're going to fair trial and you're going to set yourself up on the flip side for reversal, just something like, like I talked about the structural error being grounds for reversal the other way. You're going to come in on a Strickland and effective assistance of counsel and say, my, my, my attorneys were not effective. I mean, I lost and this is because my attorneys did X, Y, and Z. Yeah. The, the not showing up for hearing is a, is a unique situation because one is the lawyer is not being a lawyer at that point. Not, not filing briefs, not meeting okay. deadlines, not, um, submitting a brief of AI that doesn't make any sense. Judge, if a judge is exhausting other remedies short of disqualification, extreme misconduct will eventually fall into one of our other categories. That is, the client will object to the continued representation, that the lawyer will uh, be removed from the case, excuse me, the lawyer will uh, eventually himself pull out of the case or a conflict of interest will develop. And we see that in some of the other cases across the country. And so like if a lawyer in one case was uh, obstructing justice, he was literally going behind the scenes, talking to co-defendants who were represented, trying to manipulate their testimony. The, the judge at that point just pr- proceeds forward with the law on conflict of interest, says, calls forward those witnesses, said, did this lawyer try and obstruct justice? Did he try and commit a crime? And then at this point, a conflict of interest is the, it occurs because then the lawyer can't advise the defendant to take a plea because for fear he might himself be more criminally culpable. But, but you believe that all conflicts are waivable. Am I understanding your position right? Uh, I think that our rules is that an actual conflict of interest is unwaivable when you sue one party versus the other. And shockingly, that seemed to have happened in one of the cases in Indiana. Uh, but I, so I think, but other conflicts are waivable conflicts and other than that one rare exception. And I'm still a little confused with the exchange with Justice Slaughter about the waiver. So let me let me ask it this way. If we grant you the relief you're requesting, we reinstate counsel and Mr. Allen's convicted. Can he pursue through PCR post-conviction relief proceedings a claim that his counsel were ineffective for the very same reasons that the trial judge here found? So the trial judge here found that he can't. It depends on what record the court would build regarding those. But no short. No, I'm going to change that just no because these issues have nothing to do with effective representation at trial so i don't think he could pursue them on those grounds but so i don't see how these three violations the inadvertent disclosure 
of pretrial discovery that the press release over a year ago in, in, in direct response to press that the government was putting out. I don't see how those issues affect his trial. So I don't think he gets a post-conviction relief through that because those issues don't affect trial strategy. But, but you're saying he would lose on the merits. You're not willing to concede that it would be wavering. And it seems odd that he could have it both ways, that he, he can say, you can never remove my counsel over my objection. I object, but then still have available to him the argument later that, well, even though I objected, it was still ineffective. If, if the judge exhausts, I, I think the judge can take care of that. The judge can call, say, let's have a hearing regarding that pretrial publicity and somehow establish that that might be affecting his trial and that it fully and fairly advise him that that's a repercussion. But if he, when he's fully and fairly advised of that, the repercussions of that judge's subjective belief that there was somehow some sort of ethical violation there, I think that would be, he would be waiving it. So, well, counsel, yes. counsel are, are you arguing that the record doesn't support a finding of ineffectiveness by the trial judge? Or are you saying if the judge finds it, she still can't remove him? Both. This record does not support ineffective assistance to counsel. But even if it, it did. No, sorry. <laughs> the reasons that she advances aren't reasons to find a lawyer ineffective. Now, if this court was to say those are reasons that a law that would constitute ineffective assistance of counsel for a Sixth Amendment violation. So if we were to get to that point and he was fully and fairly advised of the potential repercussions of those violations on his trial strategy, then you could have a waiver issue. But the, the reasons that she cites for doing what she did have nothing to do with trial. But let's assume for a moment that she cited a reason that there's an intimate relationship going on and she pulls them in it goes into the chambers and says, listen, I understand that there's an intimate relationship occurring between the defendant and you. Do you understand that's a conflict of interest? That's a violation of the ethical rules that there's a disciplinary proceeding that I'm going to be referring for him. Do you want to go forward with this representation? And the client says, yes. I think you've got a waiver of ineffective assistance of counsel on those grounds, but I don't think that the judge is absolutely precluded from injecting herself and saying, well, that in that case would be a conflict of interest. So I really, we're struggling to find a situation where there's an ethical violation that affects the outcome of trial, where there's a situation where the defendant can, uh, can says, I want to go forward. I've been fully and fairly advised of it. And the judge somehow has a role absence of conflict of interest injecting herself into that. And I do think that you can waive we, we, you can waive an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. That's, that's well-established case law. It's just none of these things the judge cite have anything to do with ineffective assistance of counsel. These are purported ethical violations, and not every ethical violation necessarily, even if it was established, has anything to do with trial, strat trial strategy and whether a defendant receives a fair trial. And, and these are examples, these are good examples of that, in that uh, the inadvertent disclosure a pretrial discovery has not would ha, the, the 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 alleged violations here would have nothing to do with the trial strategy that attorneys Baldwin and Rosie developed with him, and would have no impact on that case. Mr. Lehman, let me just sort of ask you, with respect to the line of questioning, if we were to agree with you and find that there was inadequate reason, at least on the record, to allow for the removal or the refusal for counsel to uh, reappear, nothing would stop the trial court from making a more complete record and going through a different process if, in fact, it believed that there were sufficient reasons to remove them. They just weren't adequately reflected in the record. Judge, I think a court has broad discretion on how it conducts proceedings in the courtroom, but none of the reasons that she cites in her brief would allow the, would would even if found would but substantiate the removal. But if the court were nonetheless worried about the finality, the eventual finality of the proceedings and wanted to nip a problem in the bud, is there anything that would stop her uh, from conducting a proceeding on remand or, 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 or similar? To no, I, I think if there's a concern, say for example, the pretrial publicity, the press release, if you say, listen, I think, because the, the violation says it has to, uh, affect the fair trial. So, okay, you're going to have a hearing. The judge could have a hearing. Let's provide proof what, that what, what, or get some sort of sense as to how this has affected the jury pool or what prejudice the jury pool. I, I assume the judge could conduct some sort of proceedings to investigate that. 
But if the client is fully and fairly aware of those proceedings and still wants to proceed forward with these clients, then there's a, the judge has an absolute duty to accept or to act on his wishes. Mr. Lehman, is, is it your belief that if we deny the extraordinary request that you've sought today, and if the case goes back to trial with a different set of lawyers that this defendant does, just does not want, that there is built into that record, at least fundamental error, maybe structural error that's reversible? Trials for show. It's a practice-only trial, Judge. I think, and that's why we came here as fast as we could, because if we do not get something done now, the victims are going to be hurt, the public's going to be hurt, the entire Indiana judiciary is going to be harmed, because this trial's been pushed off to October, and when the judge said it in October of 2024, one of the lawyers, I believe, even represented, he didn't think they were going to get that date either. Everybody's hurt, and we're going to delay things. And you think the Gonzalez-Lopez precedent of the U.S. Supreme Court would dictate that outcome? I think it's structural error, yes. So, and this trial is going to be for practice only, and we have built-in error, and the only way we can fix it and address the speedy trial problem, because that was an intimate part of the trial strategy, is to get attorneys Baldwin and Rosie back on the case and get this case set for trial in a time frame that's as fast as our law allows, which is 70 days. And that's what the relief we're requesting. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from you again on rebuttal. So, that was interesting, especially if you're a law nerd like myself, and if you're not, then sorry about that, but I find it very interesting, and like I said, I will have the link to our YouTube channel in the show notes where you can go on and watch that entire hearing. What I didn't play for you was the state's oral argument, and so that would have been Judge Gull's lawyer and also the Attorney General took some time to talk to the Supreme Court, and they asked quite a few questions, and then at the very end, the Rick Allen's lawyers got up and did a rebuttal for about seven minutes. So, all in all, it was pretty interesting. Now, quickly to wrap up, I want to go through as quickly as I can the filing that was made last week by Robert Scremin and William Labrado, which were, at this point, Richard Allen's new appointed attorneys who are now off the case. So, I think this filing probably still stays put, but the judge still has to rule on this. So, it's basically called a motion to transfer, and it says, Now comes the defendant by and through his appointed counsel, Robert C. Scremin and William Labrado, and hereby submits the motion to transfer and states the following. Argument. Richard Allen is currently being held in pretrial detention at the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, a maximum security state prison. After visiting with Mr. Allen at both the Westville Correctional Facility and the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, it is counsel's belief that one, Mr. Allen is not being treated similar to other pretrial detainees being held in county jails, and two, pretrial incarceration at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility will seriously, if not fatally, impact counsel's ability to effectively represent Mr. Allen due to the distance of travel and visitation conditions. Facts. Number one, on November 3rd, 2022, the state of Indiana filed a motion on behalf of the Sheriff of Carroll County asking the court to transfer Richard Allen to the custody of the Department of Corrections, claiming that due to his being high-profile case, the Carroll County Sheriff could not adequately provide Mr. Allen with the necessary security or other needs that at the Carroll County Jail. Judge Diener, without having an evidentiary hearing on the merits, granted the state's motion and approved Richard Allen's transfer to the Department of Corrections and then recused himself from the case that same day. Mr. Allen had no opportunity to object to this transfer and no one appeared to consider how this might negatively impact Mr. Allen's defense. On April 5, 2023, Mr. Allen's formal counsel filed an emergency motion to modify a safekeeping order essentially a motion to transfer Mr. Allen to a county jail. I have reviewed counsel's motion, and although I lack personal knowledge to vouch for all of the allegations made as Mr. Allen's present counsel, I believe it to be meritous 
and based upon 25 years of practicing law, I agree that Mr. Allen is not being treated similar to other pretrial detainees in county jails, and that is his pretrial incarceration at a distant state prison severely impacts counsel's ability to effectively communicate with Mr. Allen and effectively, and effectively represent him. I would incorporate the legal arguments made by prior counsel and add that Mr. Allen's distance from present counsel and the conditions during visitation negatively, negatively impact counsel's ability to effectively represent Mr. Allen. Number three, on April 14, 2023, this court denied prior counsel's motion and Mr. Allen remains in the custody of the Department of Corrections. Number four, on April 28, 2023, this court received a letter written by an inmate at Westville Correctional Facility alleging that Mr. Allen was being abused and mistreated. On September 18, 2023, prior counsel filed a motion for a Franks hearing in support of their previously filed motion to suppress. Prior counsel included a 136-page memorandum with 126 confidential exhibits. The memorandum and exhibits, among other things, alleged prison guards at Westville Correctional Facility were allowed to wear patches on their official uniforms supporting Odinism, and that crime scene photos suggested a potential connection to Odinism, which is a Nordic religion and or cult that has been associated both in the prison system and in society in general with white supremacy. After reviewing crime scene photos and visiting Mr. Allen at Westville Correctional Facility, present counsel believes these claims have merit and that pre-trial incarceration within the state prison system neg negatively impacts Mr. Allen's rights, in addition to counsel's ability to effectively represent him. Number six, on October 27, 2023, this court appointed attorneys Robert C. Scrimmon and William Librato to represent Richard Allen. Attorney Scrimmon and Librato both reside and maintain primary offices in Fort Wayne, Allen County, Indiana. Fort Wayne is approximately 106 miles from Westville Correctional Facility and a two-hour drive. Fort Wayne is approximately 233 miles from Wabash Correctional Facility and approximately a three-and-a-half-hour drive. Council's most recent visit to Mr. Allen at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility was a 10-hour day. Number eight. On November 19, 2023, Council visited with Mr. Allen at the Westville Correctional Facility. The visit was an arduous process, which included a lengthy travel, complicated and protracted prison security procedures, and difficult visitation conditions. Throughout our legal consultation, Mr. Allen remained uncomfortably and unnecessarily shackled and chained in a manner resembling Hannibal Lecter, while guards watched through the glass panels and the drawer ajar. Mr. Allen clearly appeared intimidated by the guards and was hesitant to speak freely with counsel. Number nine, although none of the prison guards were wearing patches in support of Odinism, one of the guards did have a symbolic face tattoo of Odin's spear and multiple hand and finger tattoos emblematic of Odinism and or Norse mythology. This same prison guard had public Facebook account that also displayed the same tattoos in addition to a necklace with Thor's hammer, inscribed with the letters BRSRCR, an acronym for Berserker which is very specific type of Norse battle axe and the name given to warriors fighting in honor of Odin. Other photos displayed three interlocking triangles, another symbol associated with Odinism. Number 10, Mr. Allen stated that Westville guards were intimidating and reluctant to provide him with shower and recreational access because it caused them extra work. And as a result, he often simply remained in his cell and went without recreational time or a shower to keep the peace. On December 22, 2023, Council visited Mr. Allen at the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, where Mr. Allen had recently been moved without consulting Council. The round-trip drive and visit took over 10 hours to complete. Access to the prison once again took nearly an hour, and several gates had to be manually cranked open as there was a power outage in a portion of the prison and doors could not be opened. 
Prison staff indicated they did not have any type of visitation rooms for council to use because they were not equipped for such matters, but had fashioned a visitation room in some sort of a prep kitchen within the prison's housing unit. Council was informed the visitation would be monitored by video camera. Council was taken to Mr. Allen, who was locked in a prison cell located within the kitchen. The cell appeared to be designated. The cell appeared to be designed as a place to feed a prisoner. The cell had a solid iron door with a small hinged iron flap approximately eight inches high, and that opened just far enough to slide a food tray through. This iron flap was left open, and it was through this small opening that we were allowed to see Mr. Allen and speak with him. A folding table was set up approximately six feet from the cell door with three chairs on the far side of the table. We were instructed to sit in the chairs and not to approach Mr. Allen or come within six feet of the cell door. This arrangement made it impossible to show Mr. Allen any videos or documents or discuss the case with him without raising our voices and almost shouting. 14. In 25 years of practicing law in five states, including representing numerous defendants charged with murder, I have never had to conduct an in-custody legal consultation in this fashion. The prison's visitation arrangement created an environment wherein effectively representing Mr. Allen was a fiction. 15. Mr. Allen stated that in the two weeks that he had been at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, he had not received or even been offered any recreational time, and he believed he'd taken one, possibly two showers. And he had not been allowed outside in the prison yard, although other inmates enjoyed outdoor recreation. Conclusion. In 25 years of practicing law, I have never had to conduct an in-custody legal visit in the matter I have with Mr. Allen. I routinely conduct legal visits within the jail in Allen, Adams, Huntington, Randolph, and Wells counties, including consultations with numerous clients charged with murder. There is never a guard present during these consultations, and there is never audio or video equipment recording the visit. My clients are never shackled, handcuffed, or chained during visits. These are clearly state prison policies, not county jail policies. I am often able to simply sit at a table with my client and have a conversation, but at the very least, I am able to sit directly across from my client and speak through a large plexiglass partition where we can view video and documents. County jails routinely, dare I say daily, have lawyers visiting pretrial detainees, and as such, county jails have rooms specifically designed for attorney visits. County jails also have streamlined access protocol for defense attorneys that often takes no more than a minute or two as opposed to an hour, and laptops, phones, and tablets are routinely allowed during attorney visits with no special requests. County jail visits with clients can even be set up same day. Clients in county jails are extremely accessible and multiple visits can be quickly and efficiently made with legal issues arise. Based upon counsel's observation and experience, Mr. Allen is not being treated similar to other pretrial detainees being held in county jails. However, even if this court were to find that Mr. Allen's pretrial treatment within the state prison system does not in itself justify moving him to a county jail, evidence is absolutely overwhelming that pretrial detainment at Wabash Valley Correctional Facility will seriously, if not fatally, impact counsel's ability to effectively represent Mr. Allen due to a sheer distance of travel and the unworkable visitation conditions. Counsel for Mr. Allen respectfully requests that he be transferred to either the Allen County Jail or the Adams County Jail. Respectfully, Robert C. Scrimmon. So the reason why I wanted to bring that to you is because this totally backs up what Rosie and Baldwin um, were alleging. And this is one of the things that Judge Gall came out and said, basically, that they went into open court and lied about um, his treatment in the Department of Corrections. So uh, being that these attorneys are from Judge Gall's county, everybody thought that these were Judge Gall's boys. One of them is even Facebook friends with Fran Gall. So it just raises my suspicion that this is probably true.
know, he's obviously being treated as a convicted murderer. Um, the same as everybody else in the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, probably. And I don't think that's appropriate. He hasn't been found guilty of anything yet. Even if we believe he's the guy, he's still a pretrial detainee. So hopefully Judge Gall, since she's staying on the case, will still issue a ruling on this motion to transfer. Hopefully she concedes that some of these conditions are not right. And um, because again, in this filing, I see numerous items that are fit for appeal um, at the appeals process. So hopefully, hopefully she does the right thing on this one. But again, we have no idea what she's even gonna do with Rosie and Baldwin, if she's gonna hold a hearing to disqualify them. Um, we don't know if she's going to recuse herself. We don't know if Rosie and Baldwin are going to file again to have her removed from the case. Um, time will tell. And I'm going to definitely update you as things happen in this case. So thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it will help our show grow. You can also find us on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram at True Crime Story Podcast, where the discussion can continue. If you wish to contact us, you may do so via email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. Remember to send in your podcast episodes, case suggestions, or requests. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the show. I'm Bree. And I'm sure. And we'll see you in the next chapter. Bye! Bye.